Welcome. Can you hear in the back? Is it good? Okay, good. If it needs to be louder or just just give me a sign from back there and I'll adjust it. So this talk is on um, Anapanasati and Vini Yoga, um, an approach in skillful means. And I want to start the talk by uh, giving a little story. Uh, last week I watched a, a video of some Germans that, uh, that went to Japan to, to go to a Zen monastery and, uh, and do some practice there. And the person that uh, produced the film, they went over there and they weren't sure where they were going to do it. And just through a contact, they ended up at a small monastery. I don't think they had much exposure to foreigners. And so they wanted to practice. They wanted to stay for a few weeks and make a film there. And the abbot asked the woman who was the producer, um, she was a Zen practitioner herself, asked her one question that she had to answer to see if she could get in or not. And they asked her, do you, when you clean the house, do you do it to get the house clean or do you do it just to clean? So what do you think she said? <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> so she said that she cleaned the house to get it clean. And I guess the uh, teacher liked the honesty of her answer. And she gave that answer because she knew herself well enough to give that answer. So the teacher let her in because of her honesty. Okay. So this is a talk about honesty, about being um, with ourselves in honesty and what we might find when we do that. So why are people here? What have we come for? There are probably people here that are new to meditation, some that are old, some in between. Some may not meditate at all. They just may be here for a a talk just to enjoy it. But I would hazard that everybody here, probably in one way or another, is coming because there's something that they'd like to address, some part of their life, something that they're not quite satisfied with. It could be something negative or it could be a kind of self-searching um, positive energy. And so it might be akin to this lady who we come here because we want to clean our mental house, so to speak. So this is a starting point, and this was a starting point for the Buddha as well in his teaching. He said that there are things in life that are difficult. There's dukkha, or suffering. So when we look at life, then it's something that we find. Everybody has certain aspects of their life that are unsatisfactory in some ways. It's woven into the fabric of life. It's not all of life, but it's there. Um, What are the causes of this? There is a a Zen poet, an old Zen poet, named Hanshan from China. And um, there's a poem that I want to read that I think gets to some of the core of this. And I have to paraphrase it because I've long since lost the... I had a little scrap of paper I wrote it on. It needs to be pinned up on my desk for years. Um, But I've lost it, so I think I still get the essence of it, though. So he says something like this. We're like ants trapped in a sugar bowl. All day, we go round and round. We spend our time round and round. 
we don't know there's something outside the sugar bowl. And in an instant, we have grown old. So this captured a poignancy for me in a way, the urgency of looking at ourselves to discover something fresh in life. The ants going after the sugar, the sugar is like uh, things that we keep going after in our lives. It's like sensual pleasures that we keep running after over and over again. And also there could be aversion. Um, One of the other characteristics that the Buddha talks about, which keeps us bound in suffering. Meanwhile, all the time we're getting older, um, there's sickness, and eventually there's death. So our ignorance keeps us away from seeing clearly. And so our life energy is wasted. We don't know there's something outside the sugar bowl. We think that the metaphor is to escape from the sugar bowl. And we probably think that means to escape from our lives. But it doesn't. It means to live our lives in a way that's free of the the confines, the constraints of this tendency to keep reaching after, pushing away, or ignoring the facts of life, the impermanence of life. So what the Buddhist teaching is trying to tell us is that we have an opportunity to live from a radically different perspective. But do you think he's trying to say that we should get rid of our problems, our suffering? There's a story, a good teaching story. I think it's a Zen story again on this one. Um, A man came to the Buddha with many, many problems. And he started saying, oh, my wife, she nags me all the time. And I don't have enough money. And my son, he's not doing well in school. In all, he listed a hundred problems. Can you imagine? And he said, help me with my problems, please, Buddha. And the Buddha said, no, I can't help you with your problems. I can't help you with those 100 problems. And so the man got angry. He said, you're supposed to be a great teacher. Why not? So he got up to leave in disgust. And the Buddha said, I can't help you with those 100 problems, but I can help you with the 101st problem. And he said, what's that? I only told you about 100 The 101st problem is that you shouldn't have any problems. You think you shouldn't have any problems. So once we realize the fabric of our lives does have difficulty, then we can address it and hopefully learn to live in a different way with just what life faces, just what life uh, gives to us, presents to us. The Buddha taught that we can investigate experience. We can look into the nature of it. And in the midst of it, we will see it differently. And we can live from a much freer place. He taught to calm the mind and to steady the mind. And then to investigate, to see the impermanence. If the ant had known that the sugar was impermanent, each time he went for another sugar cube that was impermanent, uh, maybe he would have only gone for the sugar cube when he was hungry and not all the time. So it's like that. We keep grasping after things 
and they're impermanent. And once again and again, then we can be not satisfied. So the goal is to use the things in life skillfully, but not to be caught by them. It's difficult to just see life as it is, to face whatever life presents us, whether it's internal or external in the moment. I know for myself, for example, um, when I have a strong emotion coming up that I don't want to be with, many times what will I do? Well, what do you do? Sometimes I'll go for, I'll go for food. Actually, I've gotten so refined that I, I, I like ginger, so I have these little ginger things that I, drink, that I eat a lot. <laughs> So I have them in my pocket. This happens sometimes. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, just pop one in. And what happens? The emotion goes away temporarily. I don't feel the pain of it. Okay? I feel okay. But then it comes back again later. So it's kind of like this. So the thing that we don't see is that it takes tremendous energy to not face all the parts of ourselves that are inside. If we could, then we would find out that whatever arises can be tools for our lives, tools for practice, tools for awakening. There's actually tremendous energy in the things that we spend so much time avoiding. And it's energy for life. It's energy that can help us live live our lives very fully. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has told me more than once on interviews and long retreats um, at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, that the practice is to keep increasing the capacity to be with experience. So it's just that we, our container to hold whatever is happening grows more and more big. So it's like a pond. If, well, it's like a cup of water. This cup of water, if I, if I put some some salt, if I put a tablespoon of salt in this water, it's going to taste pretty salty, right? So if the mind and the, the body that supports that is constricted, is, is small in a way, then an emotion that arises in it will make it feel very full of that emotion. But let's say this was a big, beautiful pond, and I'm a little thirsty. Let's say this was a big, beautiful pond, and you put the same tablespoon of, of uh of salt in it. Would it be salty? In the same way, if our capacity to experience whatever phenomenon arises becomes greater, then we can experience it fully, but it doesn't shake us. It doesn't throw us off guard. In a way, it is to see, the practice is to see all the movements of ourself. And by this, I mean all the, all the impressions from outside and all the movements from inside when we sit quietly and observe what's inside. To see them and to allow them all to be there. When we see them clearly, it leads to insight. The energy that they, they're holding, it can be released. There's a beautiful poem that expresses this well. And it's by an, ancient, it's by an old practitioner. Again, I paraphrase. After long... Inquiry, finally, the Enlightenment poem. The Enlightenment came, and the poem that followed was, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Nothing, nothing that arose 
was not capable of being seen and being a part of life. So that sounds good, doesn't it? We sit down, we look at ourselves, we see it, our container is big, and it, it feeds our life rather than taking away from it, than taking energy not to see it. Well, how do we do this? When we sit down, what happens? Pain arises, emotions arise, and do we get tossed around sometimes? Do we feel like we're a little tiny ship, uh, maybe a little rowboat on a big sea with a big storm coming in? Maybe the perfect storm even. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? (laughs) So we get tossed about here and there. So to address this, again, the Buddha had a basic formula. Calm the mind and investigate reality. But that's a little too simple. Maybe it's not too simple. That's what it comes down to. But the Buddha, he was kind of a genius in using the tools that we have to help us with this. So what do we have? We have our minds and we have our bodies. And he gave us different tools, different devices to use what's in our frame. This is our frame of reference here. Um, in different ways to calm the mind, prepare the body, and look with insight. He called them skillful means, or upaya. And that's the main thrust that I want to work with in the talk, is this sense that we use, that, that we can use whatever is helpful in this process of self-discovery, of living more freely and directly in the moment in our increasing capacity to be with experience. So, why is this talk about vipassana and a form of vipassana, anapanasati, or awareness of the in and out breathing, and yoga, specifically vini yoga? Why not just vipassana or yoga, if that's what you're into? Why both together? especially in a center like this, which is very much geared towards the Dharma, towards the teachings of the Buddha, of self-understanding and awakening. For myself, I'm sitting here because I've been doing both practices probably for about a little under 20 years, both of them fairly uh, intensively in a number of different settings. And I found them to be complementary. You'll understand why. Um, as we move along in the talk a little bit better. But as I go into this, I want to make sure that when I talk about this, it's not to try to say, you should do this. This is one expression of skillful means. There are many. So let's look at the modern cultural situation of these two traditions now. We have meditators, and there's a split here. We have meditators. Let's call them mind people. How many people in the room are mind people, are meditators first? I want to get a sense of who I'm talking to here. Okay. And then we have body people. Who are those? Those are the yoga people, right? How many body people? Hey, not bad. At least 30%. How many people both? Ah, very good. Sign them up. (laughs) So... The mind people, the meditators, uh, 
how do they look at the body? What's their relationship to the body? Well, they might think, okay, I, uh, we have to deal with this thing, don't we? We carry it around with us, and we just have to deal with it. But let's put as little energy as we can into this, okay? Because our real task is to get, is to get insight, to become wise. And yeah, we hear a lot about using the body as a tool of mindfulness. Okay, let's do that. But really, the work is with the mind, right? It's to become free in the mind. And the body people, the yoga people, if they're pure modern yoga people, then they might think, wow, this, is, this yoga stuff's great. I feel healthy, vibrant, uh, I look good, and uh, this is it. This is what I, it's fine. They might even poke fun at each other, these two schools. The, the meditators might say, look at those people. Look how attached they are to their bodies. My God, they go walk around in leotards and you see all these people walk around the streets with their yoga mats. What is this fat? This has nothing to do with freedom. And I'm making character here, okay? Please take it that way. <laughs> and the body people might look at the people that are meditating and say, they don't look very healthy. They look rather dour and sunken, introverted. God, they don't look like they're having a very good time in life. So there's a split here. And in my own experience, I found, in my own practice, I found a split that's not so much on this cultural level, even though it's expressed here, but in places that I practiced. Um, I remember once I was in the Himalayas studying Iyengar yoga with some wonderful teachers. And they knew that I was a Vipassana practitioner. So they said, okay, you can practice. And Vipassana is not so bad. But make sure that you don't do any, any of your meditation practice for three hours, till three hours after you finish your asanas, because something might go wrong. And similarly, I've been in retreats, um, intensive retreats, say, in the Burmese tradition, where I've been practicing yoga in my room and having a monk come in and say, no, no, that's not here. That's what, what is that strange practice you're doing? So I've kind of been in stealth at this for, for a long time. Maybe this is sort of a, maybe this uh, thing that we're working on now is more like uh, coming out of the closet in a way of holding these two practices secret in the face of each other. I'm exaggerating somewhat, but there has been this strong split and there are reasons for it. Historically, though, uh, I don't think it was so strong. I think that if you look back at the time of the Buddha, the Buddha came from a culture where serious spiritual endeavor was a very important uh, activity for many people. In spiritual tradition, just as using that term, the yogis of old, yoga means, it means to join. Yug means to join. And it also means to discover what we have not experienced before, a new discovery. So, the spirit of this is that people in ancient times used, and yoga goes way back before the Buddhist teaching, used the body, the mind, the elements of the universe to help to look inside themselves, to join with something that, was, that they could have more trust in, more confidence in, greater happiness than just what they found in their mind and body. Okay? So in some ways, this is extremely similar to what the, what the Buddha did which is talking about concentrating the mind and investigating reality. The Buddha is considered one of the greatest yogis, and he did many yogic practices before he um, discovered what he discovered and taught the path of insight. So he's very familiar with that culture. So we have the split now. Some of the ve- There's like one vestige of it I can think of, though. 
despite the fact that in many traditions they still do yogas, like there's Tibetan yogas, some Buddhist traditions as well. Just ways of working with the mind and body skillfully to, to uh, cultivate concentration and to move into greater investigation. But one vestige of this is in the word yogi itself. How many people have done retreats at IMS here, the Insight Meditation Society? So what do you call when you go there? Ah, yogi. <laughs> so you're called a yogi. Even in Burma, which is a very traditional Theravada country, when you go to a meditation center, you're called a yogi. There's no, there's no distinction here between uh, someone from India with different cultural um, set of assumptions behind them. There's just someone who's practicing. It's called a yogi. So I want to. I like to introduce this spirit because I think it's very important. Um, for myself, uh, my intention in talking about these things is it's not to have a, a syncretic approach. It's not to bring these two together and form some great new or ancient or rediscover some ancient thing. For me, it's to really be in the spirit of using skillful means, using what yoga has to offer to help further um, the insight practice, the capacity to be with experience. And there's also, I must admit, the incentive for for good health, to have a healthy body. Of course, at times there's been a, a, a delight in the body as well, doing strong yoga practices. But I'd say when it comes down to it, it's it's been to support the practice of mindfulness and insight. And so I'm very clear with that. I'll give you a, a story of an experience I had in Japan, which uh, made it clear that I wanted to move in this direction. So after college, I went to Japan for some years to, to study Zen. It's one of the main things I did there. At a certain point, I went looking for monasteries. I wanted to stay in one for an extended period of training. And I went to a place called Eheji, which is, if anyone knows, one of the main schools uh, founded by Dogen, the Soto school, that was his monastery. So I went there. It's a beautiful monastery up in the, up in the mountains. I went there. There was snow. And there's actually a, there was a, a flower that was blooming out of the snow when I approached the monastery. It's it exquisite. Very silent. Very peaceful. That's not what I discovered inside the monastery walls. I went there for training, and I was doing intensive sitting with the other lay practitioners um, and maybe some monks. There was one monk that was overseeing us, and in one sit, when we were sitting, he, wouldn't, he didn't ring the bell. So the sit went on and on and on, and it became extremely, extremely painful. Um, at a certain point, and he, he walked by a couple times, but he didn't ring the bell. He didn't let us move. And I got the sense just from his presence that I shouldn't move at all. So at a certain point, tears started streaming down my eyes. It took all of my effort, just this raw will, to stay with it and not to move. And when I was in the middle of this, he came up to me and looked at me, and he said, if you move at all, you're out of the monastery. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, that was great. It gave me lots of fuel. I made it through the sit. (laughs) I was like, all right, that's a challenge. <laughs> I can take it. I probably machoed my way through. Guess what? I left soon after that. Why? Because I reflected to myself, what happened in that moment? I could go through it, but it wasn't skillful. I wasn't, I wasn't gaining insight. I wasn't even gaining concentration. I was struggling radically with the pain. 
And I was looking for a place that I could do long-term training. I had a long-term approach to this. So it was a quality of metta in a way, of self-reflection and metta that led me to find a place to practice that actually taught yoga. And we did some running every morning. And so it was honoring the body in a way where I wasn't rubbing against this raw experience of pain that I didn't know how to be with. I didn't have the capacity to hold it at that point. Oh, an aside though, the monastery I went to, um, we did do, we did yoga every day and we ran, but it was running at 3.30 in the morning in the freezing cold and the yoga was very militaristic. It was, I mean, it was extremely difficult yoga. But still, in the Zen tradition, that's as close as I could get probably. And it did help actually. So why did it help? What did it do? What was useful about it? Well, one of the main functions for myself and traditionally has that yoga has served as to prepare for sitting. And how does it do this? When we sit, what happens? The body, if it's not used to it, becomes some of the muscles become tight. The back may become stiff or sore. So what yoga does is it tries to work with the muscles of the body that are used in sitting. And by sitting, traditionally, we mean like this gentleman here who's sitting very beautifully in uh, almost half lotus. But this is, actually, you could be sitting in a chair like I am as well. I'm sitting in a chair, by the way, because I've had knee surgery on both my knees. And uh, I, I did practice half lotus for a lot of years in Japan. Um, even though I was doing yoga, it still had its effects. There's a lot of us out there. Actually, um, uh, myself and some others taught at uh, Kripalu last year, including Larry. And by the end of the retreat, these are long-time, you know, hardcore meditators. By the end of the retreat, we were all sitting in chairs. <laughs> so it does take its toll. And part of that, actually, is cultural. Um, we're not used to, and it's, it's, that culture has spread to the Eastern countries as well quite a bit now. We're just not too used to sitting cross-legged. We're not used to sitting on the ground. We're not used to doing the things that open up the muscles um, and prepare us and just naturally allow us to sit comfortably. So yoga actually recreates some of these things. It works to open the hips so that the legs can be down towards the ground in a comfortable way for an extended period of time. So it lengthens muscles that need to be lengthened. It works with strengthening muscles, especially in the back, which you need for sitting upright for long periods of time. It works with the spine, twisting the spine, balancing the spine, creating energy there and uprightness that helps the nervous system, helps the circulation throughout the body. And it's done in the spirit. It has traditionally been done in the path of yoga, which also, um, in the system of Patanjali, also moves from, from outer to inner in a way, moves from working with the body, and then we explore the mind. So, this is the backdrop of it. There's a teacher that, uh, a yoga teacher that I worked with in India named Patabi Joyce. He's the co-founder of, uh, probably of Ashtanga Yoga, which, how many people know what Ashtanga Yoga is? Okay, good. It's a very vigorous form of yoga. Well, someone I know there, he asked, they were just doing the, the practice of asanas, just these rigorous practices of asanas. Um, and he asked him, uh, I'd like to learn some breathing from you, okay? Because sitting prepares for breathing, intentional breathing work. And Patabi Joy said to him, 
This is the story I heard. Okay, I'll teach you breathing once you can sit comfortably without pain in full lotus for three hours. Uh, okay, I heard that. It's like, okay, this, I'm never going to learn breathing from this guy. <laughs> I don't think he did either. It's a very rare individual that can do that. But what it serves to show is the seriousness, the seriousness with which the tradition places on the body, and it's been cultivated for thousands of years, to really prepare the body for sitting long periods of time in stillness and in comfort. It's called shtiram and sukham, which means comfort and steadiness. We'd all like to sit with comfort and steadiness, wouldn't we? So, it helps with sitting. This is a direct way. It helps with mindfulness of the body in sitting not just for comfort, but to have a greater awareness of the body. Just think about it. If we're doing stretches in different directions, we're using the limbs in different ways. We're creating an opportunity where we can be aware of the body in a lot of ways that aren't so traditional. So if we apply our mindfulness in all these different positions, it can cultivate a greater sense of the whole body. Okay? And this is a a beautiful expression of the first foundation of mindfulness. There's different ways of applying mindfulness, attention, in our practice. The body is the anchor. It's a core. It's the first, the first one. And so it helps in this. And when we move into sitting with mindfulness of the body, what does it do? It helps the body be steady, be at ease. Now, in the four foundations of mindfulness, there are different factors of awakening that contribute um, to a mind that can see clearly into experience and become free. One of these is concentration. The Buddha said, for one who is at ease, his body calmed, the mind becomes concentrated. For one who is at ease, the body calmed, the mind becomes concentrated. So, when the asanas can prepare one for being in stillness, the body at ease, it's a tremendous support. It's more than a support. It leads naturally to concentration of mind. And what does this do? This concentration, this sense of ease in the body, it helps to expand the container for what we can be with. And this provides the frame where insight can be effective. I want to read something by Ajahn Mahaboa, who is a, a great Thai forest master, who I had the good, good fortune of practicing with some years ago. And this is looking at investigation with this sense of a calm body and a strong mind. Here's how we investigate. Looking at pain. This is very different than what I did in the Zen monastery. Didn't have the strength to investigate. He says we have to investigate pain. What does it come from? What does it depend on? And it could be an emotional pain, a pain in the heart, a pain in the mind. It depends on the body. 
it's related to the body. From what spot in the body does the pain arise? Look at the body and the feeling. So it asks us to move inward, to see just what's happening, and we notice that there's a relationship. Are the body and the feeling, are they one and the same, he asks? Are they one and the same thing? What kind of shape and features do they have? The feeling doesn't have any shape or features or a posture of any kind. It simply appears as a feeling of pain. That is all. So when we go deep into experience and look at it, pain, pain in the body, a feeling tone, could be an emotion and the pain in the body, or an emotion and a feeling tone, and then shifting to the body. We all know when we start to investigate the intricacies of what happens. But here's what it comes down to. It simply appears as a feeling of pain. That is all. It's naked. It's raw. It reveals itself in his essence, and it can be seen and liberated by that fact. So pain can be a powerful tool of awakening. It is in the classic Buddhist teachings, and it probably is for all of us in our life experience. And so we've shown how yoga can help prepare the ground for this, a ground for helping us to investigate. We don't even have to try to do it. It happens naturally. We go inward, we sit. Our capacity may expand to be with experience. And things arise. We watch what arises. We see it. Can we see it nakedly? Can we allow it to reveal itself and allow its energy to be felt? Can we see its change? So we've looked at the foundation of mindfulness in the body. And we've looked at vipassana, looking at pain. And we've talked about yoga in general so far. So I personally find, have found for myself, I've studied in a number of different yoga schools, that any type of yoga um, that helps to cultivate mindfulness of body is a good tool. Okay? It can be, a very, can be, with the spirit of inquiry, a very powerful tool in helping us in our process of awakening. So now I'm going to move on to talk about another form of mindfulness of the body, or breath. And the title of the talk is actually Mindfulness of Breathing, and a yoga that is based on mindfulness of breathing. So as an an expression of mindfulness of the body is the breath. Right now, can you feel your breath? Is it part of the body? Is it part of the immediacy of the experience? So the practice of anapanasati, which means in and out breathing, is it's actually considered by many to be the technique that the Buddha used um, to take him all the way to enlightenment. And many of you have probably read Larry's book and have been practicing perhaps a form where the breath is a very key ingredient in our practice on the cushion and for some of us off the cushion as well. So the breath becomes a base. It becomes a place, both an anchor of awareness where we cultivate steadiness and concentration. And then in the sutra, the Anapanasati Sutra, it works all the way through from the base of just watching the breath 
It's an object of the body. To slowly investigating feelings, mind states, and the nature of change, the nature of realities as they come and pass away on their own. It's moving from the coarse to the subtle, the body, and slowly, slowly moving inward to more uh, refined aspects of our experience. There's 16 steps in all. But what Larry teaches and what I think is important to, to look at is what's called the condensed method, which is the very simple practice of calming the mind and then opening up to experience, to whatever arises. It's uh, called shamatha and vipassana, if you want the technical terms. And we all work with this in our own practice, if this is our practice in different ways. Moving to the breath, to the experience of the moment, maybe back to the breath. Allowing experiences to rise with the breath in the background, or just as an aspect of the body. Sometimes the breath may fade altogether. But it's a very powerful tool, it's a very powerful anchor that can become that you can come back to to find a steadiness of mind and it can also reveal important truths it's impermanent itself so as we become steadier and we open up the awareness it shows us different aspects of ourselves okay so now I want to shift turn the attention to what's called Vini Yoga, which is a breath-based yoga. And that's something that I've been um, working with for some years and that myself and uh, Larry and some others have been, have been teaching here and at other locations. And just to place um, Vini Yoga in the spectrum of yoga in general, Vinyoga means uh, vinyasa yoga. It means that means linked by breath, movement linked by breath. And the founder was Krishnamacharya, who, if you're yoga buffs, then you might know who he is, because uh, both Iyengar, it's one of the there are many Iyengar studios in this country and around the world, and Patabi Joyce, the man that I mentioned earlier, um, founder of Ashtanga Yoga, they were both disciples of Krishnamacharya. Um, He had many other famous disciples as well, and he taught to his son. His son's name is Deshikachar. And so I've been working with Deshikachar and his son, the third in the lineage, as well as other teachers in that school. For the past few years intensively, I've been going to India uh, once or twice a year um, to work with them. And what is unique about this? Why have... Why are we working with Vinaya Yoga in particular? Well, one, it's breath-based. And one thing that Krishnamacharya did in a way that was revolutionary is bring breathing into the poses. It's very common. It's in Ashtanga Yoga. It's in different styles. But he brought breathing into the asana, into the movements, in and out of asanas. And so, for example, I'll just give you an example. If you raise, we can do it. You want to do it together? If you want, fine. If not, don't worry about it. It could be deep in concentration. Okay. Inhale and raise your arm. Notice the breath. Now as the breath starts to move on the exhale, then lower the arm. Just do it one more time. Inhale, let the breath start, and then the movement. Feel the sensations of the movement. Exhaling, and 
lowering the hand. So what's your quality of mind right now? Was that a powerful way just to come into the present moment? Okay. So that's the first feature. Mindfulness of the body and breath and movement linked together. The idea is it's in a seamless whole. Okay. And this has the benefit it can increase concentration, as you probably just experienced. It's a powerful form of mindfulness. Um, and it can, it can bring more vividness when we move from this into sitting meditation. It can bring more vividness into the sitting, into watching the breath, because we've been watching the breath all along. Sit down and watch the breath. It can be more vivid. There's also an emphasis on the spine and the breath. So this can bring energy to the sitting posture itself. The second feature, which is very important, is that it's very adaptable. And this is extremely important for myself, and it's important in the exploration that we're doing here as well. Um, because you're not asked to, to believe anything, to do it. You're not asked to fit into any their way of thinking. A couple of years ago, I was studying with one of the senior teachers in Madras. I was studying one of the uh, classical Indian spiritual texts, and we came to this notion of God. Okay, well, do we have a God in the Buddhist teachings? Okay, if you, it's actually, I shouldn't say such a loaded statement. <laughs> we come to practice and to investigate whatever our, whatever our thoughts are, our, our belief systems, okay? And we can come to terms with that in our own practice. We don't need to actually believe anything to do the practice. And that's the same thing that they, the same spirit that I was held up there, that was given to me there. So when there was this notion of, um, of God, the teacher said to me, you have a Zen background, don't you? I said, yes. He said, okay, then for you, this notion of God is being in the present moment. That's what it is. He said, it's not, it's not, it's not some external thing. That's what it is. And he was completely sincere. And that made me relax and be able to continue with my studies in a very fresh way. So they were meeting me. They were meeting me where I was, not trying to impose where they were coming from on me. And it was very, very valuable. They said, you don't have to have a, poli- a particular belief structure to move forward with these teachings. Another related strength is that the, the function of the work in the yoga follows excuse me, the, the form follows the function. So whatever your goal is, whatever your objective is in doing yoga, then you adapt the yoga to that purpose. So for example, if we were doing, if we were doing a series of asanas and we we're doing, let's say, the warrior pose, people know what that is? You bring the arms up like this over the head and it opens the chest. It can bring a lot of energy here. We don't have to do it together. <laughs> So if somebody, let's say someone has a shoulder injury, for example, and you ask them to do this, ah, they can't do it. So you just say, okay, bring your arms up to the sides. Or don't lift your, lift your arms at all. You can still have movement. You can still have mindfulness, and you'll still get effects from the posture. So, and actually, Deshikachar and Krishnamacharya in, his, in their later years, they taught mostly, if not exclusively, to individuals, one-on-one, because they wanted to find what would work for each person and not trying to impose some form on a whole bunch of people, because that doesn't work as well. So that spirit of adaptability is very strong in the tradition, and we try to bring it into this. For us, the function is what? For people that do this, it's to create a steadiness, it's to create and increase our 
capacity to be aware, to be awake in the moment with our body, and whatever arises. So it can serve that function. We can tailor the asanas towards that and tailor the attention, the attitude that we bring into the asanas for that purpose as well. So those are some of the strengths of Vini Yoga and how we, why we found it so rich to bring these two uh, tools together. And we, especially it's been very useful for people, people that don't have a lot of sitting experience. Because sometimes, and Larry's told me that perhaps a half of all the questions that come in the first years of uh, interviews with people are all about pain. They're about physical pain, or maybe mental pain from the, the mind he's being scattered. But actually, in this reference, it's physical pain. So just on that very basic level, it can help us to be more comfortable in our bodies. It's, it's just skillful means. How can we help ourselves? You know, what tools can we use to make this process easier? It's tough enough as it is. So now I want to give a few general reflections. Um, looking at the body and the breath and attitudes in both the Buddhist teachings, the different traditions, and yoga. And I want you to look at this from a perspective, not of comparative mind, okay? Because this is definitely not an exercise in comparative religion or comparative spirituality. It's to see what can be useful. It's to see where you are in the, the different spectrum of what's being presented and if you can learn something from it. So let's look at the body. In the Buddhist teachings, especially the traditional teachings of the Theravada from where the practices of insight meditation that we do here have their base, there's a slightly um, negative slant, you might say, towards the body. There's a whole series of contemplations that are designed to have an attitude towards the body that is one that counteracts a tendency that we may have uh, to, to really delight in sensual pleasures. So there's reflections on old age um, and on the body in ways that we'll think, okay, I, I'm not so attracted to it. So I'm not always going to be going out reaching for the next thing to make it to make it really happy, whether it's another person or another sense pleasure. And you can see the culture this comes from is a monastic culture, and it's very practical for people in that culture to have, not to be one to be lured in a way back to the lay life. So we can learn lessons from that without having to adhere to it totally. For us, we don't want to have, in its rawest form, disgust for the body. We live in these bodies. We want to enjoy them. Okay? But there's a sense of, of not being so attached, of learning to have a middle ground. So that's the intention, on, that's on the, on the Buddhist side. On the, on the yogic side, as we know, um, the body, well, the body is a vehicle for awakening, obviously, in the, the Buddhist teaching as well. It's, all, it's definitely a vehicle for awakening in, in yoga. It brings health, vitality, as we know, um, beauty, resilience, flexibility, keep going on, right? It can bring all these things. And so that's, that's good. That's good because we want to be healthy, especially as we get older. We want to have less aches and pains. We want to be able to move more, more flowing, more skillfully through life, right? But what's the, what's the possible problem here? We can get attached to it pretty radically, right? 
end. So where do you think you are on this? Do you feel like you're really attached to your body? Or do you may have a negative relationship where it's, you don't really like it that much? Or where are you and how can you learn? Do you, want to, do you need to create, increase your vitality? Or do you feel like you're strong and healthy and you might be too much in the ego sense of your body and you want to try to work a little more in the other direction? We have to see where we're at. One thing I want to mention about the Buddhist teaching that I haven't really talked about is a kind of natural yoga that is, is woven into our practice. And what is that? Walking meditation, right? This can be a place um, where we cultivate concentration, where we help to balance the body from sitting. And there's a, there's a nice uh, teaching in the Buddha. He said, those who walk, their concentration, who walk a lot, their concentration will be good. Their digestion will be good. They won't have a lot of diseases. Um, they'll be at ease in their bodies. So that's a very powerful tool that we have at our hands. Let's not overlook that if we're meditators. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about is food. And I'm stereotyping here a little, but there's a, there's a Zen story, again, I love Zen stories, <laughs> where it's said that the, when a Zen monk eats food, okay, the, the belly of a Zen monk is like a furnace. Whatever you put in it, it burns up. <coughs> okay? So you can throw anything down there. It's fine. There's doesn't matter. I've experienced myself um, this notion that you just have food, whatever's offered. I was ordained in Thailand for a time. And you just take whatever's offered. You eat that food. Okay? And so you, and a lot of people, they mix it up in their bowl, too. It's like, this is just to sustain the body. That's it for nothing more, so you can carry on with the practice. So that's one. We'll get back to that. There's, there's, that's not the whole story, but that's a good place to start. On the yogic side, there's a tremendous emphasis played, placed on having appropriate foods that are supportive to the process, called preparing the body and moving inward. So Krishnamacharya has said it's a full 50% of asana, of the, working with the body, is attention to food. And there's a great science in India of Ayurveda, of um, working with herbs, with foods in different ways so they work well with our own particular body structure to make us in optimal health, to give us the optimal tools to do the inner work. So what's the danger here? We'll get attached, we'll become, we'll get on food trips. I'm just translating into our modern situation now, right? We're so concerned with food that it has to be perfect. We have to feel perfect from it that somehow the spirit of inquiry is getting lost. On the other hand, if we don't take care of ourselves, and I had this experience in Thailand. I was, I was actually um, a vegetarian for some years, and when I was ordained, I couldn't get good. I was just eating what people offered. I couldn't get good food, and I got weaker and weaker. So I started eating meat again. Well, only chicken and fish, but... I started eating again because I needed the strength. So there wasn't, and even then I felt weak. I didn't feel, and that definitely impacted my practice. One of the, to put it in perspective really, one of the, um, one of what's called the suitable conditions from practice in the Buddhist teachings is to have nutritious food that's the right in amount and that you're not averse to it. So you should have food that's good, that's healthy, 
I think that's the spirit of what happens here at IMS at other centers. They try to give good, clean food that nourishes you for practice, but not have it embellished and not to forget about it so that you become weaker in practice. So these are some attitudes towards food. Now let's look at breath. Breath in the Buddha's teaching is in Anapanasati is non-directed. What does this mean? We let the breath be exactly how it is. If there's a short breath, we watch a short breath. If there's a long breath, there's a long breath. We use this as an anchor for awareness, but it's non-directed. We develop concentration on watching it just as it is. In yoga, as with the asanas, there's more of a systematic approach to working with the breath, where you cultivate different states of mind and body through increasing the inhalation, the exhalation, through working with retention and inhale and exhale. They're considered skillful means to create effect. So, for example, if we're, if we're all sleepy right now, okay, we've been talking for a while, and you might have sat, so you've been here a long time. In this case, they might recommend that you take a, a long inhale. You can do it if you want. You don't have to. Hold it for a little bit, feel the energy of it, and let it go. So, in what's called pranayama, it means, prana means life force, and the breath is a carrier for our life force. It means that we work with this intentionally, in a systematic way, to cultivate certain states of mind using the body, mindfulness of body of the breath, to do this. So there are, there are similar things in the Buddhist teachings, which are called, they're not done systematically in the same way, but they're called antidotes, just to fill out the comparisons here, the contrasts. And that means, for example, if you're sleepy, then you might stand up, go for a brisk walk. There are things you do, okay, to counteract states that you're in. If you have anger, you might do loving-kindness meditation. And even the non-directed breath, you can still direct attention there very strongly. So even though you're watching the natural breath, you might say, okay, I need to come back to this breath. I need to become focused strongly. So that's using, if, if there's sleepiness or restlessness, whatever. Okay, So that's using directedness. So here's some contrast of the two systems. And even when we're And now we're moving into the last part, which is the mind, which is awareness. Just coming back to this quality of investigation. Even Deshikachar, when talking about pranayam, this control of breath, they said the highest pranayam is the natural breath, is being with the natural rhythm and movement of the breath. And what does this speak to? For me, it speaks to the fact that everything that we do at a certain point, we let it go. Hopefully we cultivated stillness of mind through stillness of body and concentration. And then that becomes a base where we can live with awareness, where we can live with a natural sense of investigation. There's an Indian teacher, Vimala Takar, who speaks beautifully, I think, in a general sense about this process. If we look at yoga or if we look at the teachings of Anapana, Sati, the Buddhist teachings in general. So one who is a practitioner, she says, is like a sculptor who appropriates his chisel, not on stone, but on his own body and mind. And the forms and shapes that take form there are those that are within him. Spiritual endeavor, therefore, consists in bringing the spirit of self-inquiry to bear on all matters 
at all times and in every context. So there's forms, even the form of using the breath, the form of vinyoga yoga or any other type of yoga. These are like we're sculptors, we're working in our own inner realm. And whatever arises, that's the material of our piece of art. After having said that, what does she say? The spirit of self-inquiry must be born on all matters at all times and in all contexts. So that goes beyond forms. That means the function, the final function of all of this is to be more wakeful. So I'll give you another quote, final quote, which is a little more traditional view on this from Ajahn Chah. People know who he is? It's quoted here a lot. Great Thai forest master. A very open, uh, strong, but playful presence. It's very great. Very great teacher. Don't think that sitting with eyes closed is the only practice. And I'll ad-lib here. Or yoga. Or being on the mat. If that's your thinking, change it. Steady practice is having the attitude while standing, walking, sitting, and lying down, etc. I'm adding this again. Whatever it may be, postures, going to the shower, eating your breakfast, your lunch, whatever, talking. You should do just this. When coming out of sitting, meditation, don't think you are coming out of meditation. Reflect that you are just changing postures. If you reflect in this way, you will have peace. Wherever you are, you will have a steady awareness within you. So we will live a life of awareness. The aspects of ourselves that are cut off, that cause us to be more dead. The qualities of of grasping that keep us in our small little worlds, our small little little ant bowl with sugar in it, so to speak. We see into these things and we can move beyond the confines of the constrictions of what we know of the limitations of our life. We can move outside of this and fully into life. You'll have a steady awareness within you. So the first story that we had, I'll close with a little rendition of it. What's the first story again? Do we, we clean the house? To clean the house or to clean? So I'll apply that, and I'm not giving you an answer. It's an open question. Do we practice yoga to help in sitting, to be healthy, or do we practice yoga? Do we meditate to have great inner experiences, some kind of freedom, notion of freedom? Or do we meditate in the same vein to help our lives? Or do we meditate when we sit? Do we do it just to sit? And last one is, do we live in order to fill in the blank? 
Or do we live just to live? Does life just express itself? And are we part of that process? And can we discover the freedom if we can truly come to know ourselves more deeply, to be in the present moment fully, using whatever skillful means are appropriate to do that? So I hope that we can all take a look and may we live with greater insight and ease. So let's sit for a moment. Okay. Thank you very much for coming. I have a short break now. So those of you who would like to leave, please do so. And we'll take questions in a few minutes. I think we're asked that if you stay... (laughs) Nothing on anyone's mind? Your minds are clear? Okay, Margot, go ahead. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about how you combine yoga and meditation, like on a daily basis. This is my housemate asking me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you're... (laughs) My (laughs) clock. So I I tend to practice both. And... For a long time, I did uh, asanas before I did sitting meditation. Uh, it seemed like a preparation for the body, and so I would do that maybe just d- different lengths of time uh, for maybe a half hour to 45 minutes to an hour at, at different times in my life, um, and then sit whatever period of time I'm sitting. Um, I do that sometimes. I also, many times now, will sit and then do asanas afterwards because it seems like a way to begin to move and to to get my body have awareness in the body and then move into daily life from that place so it's a little more active engagement so both and then if i have a longer period of time when i'm practicing at home um let's say i have three or four or five six hours or whatever to practice take a half day or something or a morning then i may go back and forth i might do you know 20 minutes of sitting excuse me 20 minutes of asana sit do a little more asana and then sit again it really depends. But is your question coming from someplace? Do you... Uh... Um, it's interesting because I've experimented with both. Mm-hmm. Sitting and then yoga. Mm-hmm. Yoga and sitting. And it is, it's just really interesting. I, I find uh, sitting, moving from the sitting to the yoga, then I'm... This is sort of a different kind of awareness of the, of the yoga, the asanas. So do you have... Is it working for you, or do you feel? I mean, is there anything that you that you that you feel like you want to change or work with, or does it seem like it's, you know, you just bring a different quality into the the practice once you've done the yoga? Yeah, I think it's just different. Okay. Yeah, it's just different. Okay. Good. Anybody else?
Silly. Um, yeah, I have practiced Tai Chi. I used to, I used to practice that um, in Asia for quite some time. And this type of yoga is called, I mean, it's, it's known as sort of the, the Tai Chi of yoga. So <laughs> there, is a fluid, there is a fluid element to it. It doesn't have to be. You can also go into poses and stay um, without a lot of movement. It just has a very different effect. Generally, there's a lot of moving in and out of poses. And there's the feeling that the breath and the movement are naturally happening together in a way that's complementary. So I find that very much with Tai Chi as well. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a real emphasis on movement and mindfulness of the body and a sensitivity of the breath at the same time in both traditions. Yeah. Um, Jamie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I came across um, a practice, in the, I, I've heard of practice in Burmese or Thai, but they actually... Reminded me of that because that's what they did. It was a mm-hmm. Buddhist practice. Where they, it is. They, they were like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forget the Ajahn's na- the teacher's name now that, that teaches it, but I went to his monastery. And uh, basically, to me, it seems like it's a strong mindfulness practice, mindfulness of, of movement. And then it gets more subtle. And then I think at some point they stop. But it's, it's actually, it actually looks quite strange. There are all these people that are. Do, have, do you know what this is? Do you know this practice? It's like hours at a time I tried it. It's like, wow. <laughs> and I think there's supposed to be a, a strong, certain type of mindfulness that develops by doing this and that you can become extremely focused. Um, I think Christopher Titmus practiced this uh, technique quite a bit when he was in, um, if you know who he is, uh, Vipassana teacher did this for quite some time. I think he was ordained in that particular tradition. But yeah, but to answer, movement can be used, and it is moved. It is used in, in Buddhist tradition as well. Good. It dissolves, and then you also inquire where the movement arises from. And stuff. Right. Have you, have you had any experience with such practices? I've tried it myself a few times, but I've talked to people who've done it. Mm-hmm. And I read that you know, from the mouth. And I think then they say the movement arises in the heart or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're saying the mind inquire it goes it moves backwards towards yeah. itself it looks towards the source towards the base right. of where both it's coming from really and right right so that's very much in the spirit of what we talked about tonight of this quality of self inquiry being this quality of being aware and having that movement turn inwards very immediately and directly as as something that can stay with us all the time and these are forms that heighten it that cultivate it right yeah. It's excruciating. Is it overwhelming her mind? She tried to wash the pain. She tried to relax, to locate the pain, inquire where it comes from. Nothing works. So, what do you mean nothing works? Can she stay with it? Does her mind become withered and and? She can't. She can't concentrate. 
Right. Well, if she was here, I could have a dialogue with her. If you worked with her, what would you say to her? It sounds like a good idea. That's that's what I do when my knee really hurts. So, <laughs> please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you have to ask the office. Okay. I, the thing, I think there may be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't talk about it much, but it's it, whatever level someone's at, they can, they can really, um, they can try it. If you have very, very serious conditions, you may have to sit in a chair, and then we just try to find ways that you can, that you can do little movements. But <laughs> welcome to the human race. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. So you're looking for a place to, to do practice? I've, I've tried different places, but I haven't found one that's really seemed like the right one yet. Mm-hmm. In what sense not right? Um, I think I'm, I'm looking for one that's particularly compatible with Vipassana that sort of has similar philosophy behind it. A philosophy or a practice that, that can be... Um, okay. Um, <coughs> you probably have to, since the... Many different types of yoga, if they're used with an attitude of supporting mindfulness and being an expression of that, it can be effective. It's not, in my experience, it's not so much um, the school as the attitude with which the practice is done. I mean, there's some that are much more compatible by nature than others, but that's the first thing to say. The second thing is who, you know, what is the teacher doing with it? You know, do, do you feel that you're encouraged? As, as a support for your practice. Now, I mean, if you want to experiment with this type that I've been talking about, if you want to come in April, they're dropping classes. But, um, and there are cycles of classes here. So if you want to uh, investigate what I've been talking about, then there'll be ongoing classes offered here. But other ways, you just have to go check it out. And you have to find out what works for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Please. Um, I have a question. I, I had taken actually your, your class, I think in spring mm-hmm. last year. Um, and I'm taking a class now here with Michael on um, meditating uh, through fear. Mm-hmm. Or with fear. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things we've been working on is um, just kind of acknowledging throughout the day or throughout the week when you feel a moment and um, acknowledging that it, it is fearful for you. Um, and then we've taken it to feeling it in your body. And um, before I started taking the class a few weeks ago, I don't think I ever felt it in my body. And now mm-hmm. I you know, will feel it for a moment here and there mm-hmm. several times a day, kind of all the time. Um, and 
Okay, let's maybe let's let's. I want to I want to stay with you right at that point. What is it like when it just it just sort of stays there? It sounds like you're looking at a technique that you're going to identify it, that you're going to do something with it. You're going to change it. You're going to get rid of it, make it better, something. More unbearable. Yeah. So what do you do at that point? If, it, if, if you're trying to stay with it, you're getting distracted, you're using that, obviously you're using that as something that you're coming back to again and again, right? Is that correct? Is that, is that become your object of, of inquiry? Um, you're anchoring? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying okay. to stay with it and mm-hmm. um, not, you know, you know, I find it immersive, so I try to get away from it, but then I'm, So there's a lot of, I mean, just, just to yeah. come in right here, there's a fair amount of, um, it sounds like you're making somewhat of a project out of it. Like so, kind of exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the surest way from your experience so far to, keep, to have something keep coming back? Is to try to push it away, right? right. You know the story of the, of the demons? They come with the door of the, of the, of the monk who's meditating in the cave. They keep knocking at the door, they keep knocking at the door, and he's scared, and he's putting up all these barriers, and it goes on for a long, long time, and then he says, oh, okay, I'm just going to let him in, let the worst come to the worst. So he comes in, and he offers him tea, and they have a cup of tea, and they leave, and they don't come back. You get it? So, <laughs> it's, not so <laughs> it's not so easy to do, okay? But I think that you have to be clear of what your practice is. If you're making this the project, then um, you can run into the problem that you're finding right now, that it's something there and you try to push it away and it comes back. If you want to work with it, right, and you're, say you're using the breath, is the breath your anchor when you're not, working, when you're not going into it? Or? A little bit breath and otherwise just like touch points. Okay. So if you're starting, there's two ways. If, if you're using an approach yeah. that's more based on trying to cultivate concentration, which can build the container, so that you can see it more, then you would go back to your, you would have more of an energy of going back to the touch points or to the breath, right? If the awareness is more open, if you're trying to say, okay, I'll be with whatever is arising, then for example, if aversion arises on the tail of it, okay, you notice the sensations here, the fear, the aversion arises, then the awareness shifts to the aversion. So it's like you need to be clear about what you're doing. If you're trying to cultivate concentration and go back and forth with the object. That's one really valid way of working. Another way, if you're, if you're allowing your awareness to be more choiceless, a more kind of pure Vipassana approach, then wherever the mind goes, you let it investigate there. So if it goes from here to aversion, then you go to the aversion. You don't try to pull it back, and you see where it goes from there. And then you come back to your primary object from that place. So it gets away from project mentality. So you can work with that and I haven't worked with Michael. I don't know. Maybe he's got some genius scheme that's going to get rid of all your fear forever. But I doubt it. I think it's probably the same thing. Capacity to be mindful of it or creating a greater context in which you can do that. Go back to it. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. Okay, good. Anybody else?
Okay, please. Just a quick question about your uh, practice again, your daily practice. Um, How about your practice? I'd rather hear about your practice, actually. Well, 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 <laughs> I'll tell you all about my practice. But in terms of, uh, you said you'd work with pranayama as well? Yeah. You did yoga. And do you work all of that in terms of doing you know, asana and pranayama and time for sitting every day, or is it? Well, I'll say, I, have, I mean, I have a personal practice that varies. And um, what I'm actually like, what I, I'm actually more interested in, if there's a reason why you're asking the question rather than just interest, then let's flesh that out. From my point of view, I'm, I've been working on building a steady yoga practice. Mm-hmm. So would you do them together, do the pranayama, and then move into meditation? No, or would you do that with the asana? The okay. meditation, it was in Burma, mm-hmm. and that was very much just sitting and, and walking. They didn't want you to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And uh, the pranayama, that was more part of, I was studying yoga in India at the time. Mm-hmm. So I would do a, a, uh, an asana practice in the morning and the afternoon, so I would sit. Well, it sounds good in terms of, I mean, it, it really depends on, on how much time you have, on what you're drawn to cultivate, and on what traditions that you're working in and what relationships you have, either with teachers or with um, your own experience, how that's growing. So it's fine to do a, one practice in the morning and to do a different practice in the evening if you have enough time and you want to cultivate both of them. You can experiment with doing a little bit, you know, back to back, but it's, it, sounds like it, it sounds like it's good. I think in working with pranayama, if you're interested in that, my experience is that it's really it's best done working with a teacher if you're gonna if you're gonna take it seriously. That's my own personal experience, and then you really need to have confidence in in that relationship, build that, um, and then see how that interfaces with your other practices. I mean, you can do little things like I teach. You know, it's a general class. So I'll teach very simple things like alternate nostril breathing or ujjayi breath, things like that. That just can be very simple ways to access more to sort of change the vehicle of attention and create a little more balance in the system through it. But if you're really interested in it as a study, then, uh, like most studies, you want to go to where you, can, where you can learn it. And be sensitive. I mean, sometimes, like in the Burmese tradition, if you do that, right, um, just do it. I mean, I've given up. I've done long retreats where I gave up my yoga practice for long periods of time. It's to throw, fully throw yourself into to what you're doing. And then when you're on your own and you're trying to make sense of things and find out what works in your own life, without being complicated, then you can begin to experiment more and find out what works, find a balance. But it sounds good. It sounds like your inquiry is healthy and you're trying to find something that works and honors both things. Uh, One more question. Last one, if anyone has one. Please. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of what I learned 
meditation too, I felt like, you know, my meditation had really moved way beyond where I'd gotten in yoga. Mm-hmm. And and I'm struggling now to try and bring my bring more mindfulness to my yoga practice. In my yoga practice, I can be in my body and I can be aware of what it is that I'm asking my body to do and I can be analytical about what my body is doing, but I can't be aware of that. Do you know what I mean? Very often. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes at a moment sometimes, and I say, okay, just let go of all the instructions for two more breaths. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, my, uh, my consciousness follows those instructions. But I don't, but it, it seems accidental. In the, same, in the same way that enlightenment is accidental? And practice makes us accident-prone? You know that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that that's what it is. And yet, uh, my question to you is, how can I work with that? Become more aware of my... my, of my, make, more of my make, make myself more aware of my yoga. While you're doing the postures, how to be more in the poses? Okay. Just simply doing them and being... With sensations or mind states or what... So can you do that in your daily life? Okay, because there's that right. Because there's activity there, right? Mm-hmm. There's movement. There's more stimuli from the outside. When you're doing yoga, you're being asked to do something, right? You're so you, you're not just being with yourself in the simplest form of not moving. That's the easiest place, in a way. At least I found it is to cultivate this quality of looking inside, right? Beyond just being mindful, but looking deeper inside, noticing mind states, right? Noticing feelings, noticing the flux, the relationships, things like this. So my sense in yoga is that it comes and goes. Um, The more busier, sometimes the harder it is, as as you're finding out, to be mindful of the nuances that are going on. So if you can be, one sense is just be attentive to that quality of frustration while you're doing the pose. Well, I'm not getting it. I'm not moving into that place. There's probably some satisfaction that comes from being able to be in that still place and do this type of investigation. So that's where to bring the mindfulness. So if you're not, if you're not really attentive, right, to what's happening at the level that you want to be, notice the movement of mind there. It's the same practice. It's that same spirit of inquiry, whatever level it's being, uh, whatever level it's touching, whether it's the physical, the emotional, the, the quality of pleasant or unpleasant, a thought. So just try to bring that in. And the other thing that can be helpful is to slow the practice down. If you're in a class, you can't do that. Okay? If you practice on your own, you can. So one way, if you really, if it's a serious thing that you'd like to, to investigate, maybe do some practice on your own. Have a routine and do it yourself. And see what speed you know, need to go on. See if you need to hold poses longer or move more dynamically, more of a fluid sense. Okay, and then what? Yeah, yeah, or or just be really rigorous in terms of just put your mind as much as you can into the body. Or if you're doing 
if you're doing with breath, I mean, I find it's very grounding to bring the movement and the breath together and be just be strong about it sometimes. So you can do two things, investigate where it is or really come back and keep it simple and, and practice. I mean, you said it yourself, just do it. Okay? Okay, that's it. It's, it's past nine. Um, so that's what I'd say, closing words. Just do it. <laughs> okay? Just fully, fully attend to what's happening. And that's skillful, right? That's skillful. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.